Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Alyssa Yahudi London. Stage and screen entertainer Wayne Newton is approaching 65 years as a performer in Las Vegas. You might have also just seen his cameo appearance on HBO Max's show Hacks. He just showed up at the 2022 NFL Draft as well, and he's a multi-talented performer and has been using his voice to advocate for his tribe in Virginia. I'll be talking to Wayne Newton up close and personal. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. After 17 overdoses, including four deaths, this spring on the Blackfeet Nation in Montana, tribal leaders across the state and surrounding states are looking for ways to stop the fentanyl crisis and provide more treatment and care. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton reports. On Marla Olinger's 300-acre ranch in the heart of the Blackfeet Indian Reservation, she recalls giving her grandchildren rides when they moved back home from Texas with her son, Justin Lee Little Dog, two years ago. So our horses are pretty gentle. They just come out because they really like the... The, uh, the horses, they like to ride. But when Little Dog moved his family into nearby Browning, Ollinger started seeing signs of drug use, like Little Dog's six-year-old stepson walking around town alone. Ollinger asked her son if he was using opioids. Little Dog denied it. But in early March, Ollinger woke up to screams coming from the other room. I was like, what? And I come through the bedroom and... And my son was laying on the floor, on the floor, and he was up. (laughs) I didn't know what to do. Little Dog was one of four people killed by fentanyl overdoses that week on the reservation. Thirteen other people survived overdoses. Stacy Keller sits on the Blackfeet Tribal Business Council. To find out how many deaths we had, how many overdoses we had that week, and I'm... I was just floored. Keller and other Blackfeet leaders declared a state of emergency, forming a task force that will take on the growing fentanyl crisis here. The Blackfeet aren't alone. Nationally, opioid overdose death rates for American Indian and Alaska Native people soared to the highest among all groups during the first year of the COVID pandemic, according to Joe Friedman, a UCLA addiction researcher. Uh, With the drug supply becoming so dangerous and so toxic, it requires resources and knowledge and skills and, um, and funds to stay safe. The Blackfeet Nation wants to expand local treatment resources and is working with other Montana and Wyoming tribes to build a regional residential treatment center. Short-term, tribal officials say they will focus on harm reduction efforts like boosting access to naloxone, which reverses overdoses, as well as access to medications that help people manage their addiction after treatment. For National Native News, I'm Aaron Bolton. A new mural is underway that will show Oregon's indigenous residents, the Kalapuya people, harvesting and using native plants. From KLCC in Eugene, Brian Bull reports. A 64-foot-long mural depicts native people gathering camas and other plants. 
It was done in consultation of Calopia elder Esther Stutzman. Susan Applegate is the designer and artist who's putting the mural on the east side of the Dr. Edwin Cullen Jr. Community Center. The community should know that these are just not weeds or something, but they had special relationship with the people, special meaning. It also informs the general population about the people who lived here before white settlement. The mural, titled Willamette Wetlands of the Kalapuya, will be done ahead of a July 9th honoring ceremony featuring songs, stories, and Eugene Mayor Lucy Venice. It's part of a larger project sponsored by Beyond Toxics and the Friendly Area Neighbors Equity Action Team. For National Native News, I'm Brian Bull. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Amerind, the 100% tribally owned insurance partner working with tribal governments and enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian country. Info at Amerind.com. Support by Stronghearts Native Helpline, providing no-charge confidential support and resources to Native Americans affected by domestic and sexual violence 24-7 at 1-844-7-NATIVE or strongheartshelpline.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. I'm Alyssa Yaki D. London from the Clinket Tribe of Alaska, and my guest today is an international superstar. He's a talented singer, multi-instrumentalist, who's released 165 albums. He's appeared in hundreds of films and television shows, and his performances in this city alone reach into the tens of thousands, earning him the nickname Mr. Las Vegas. He's currently appearing right now in a limited engagement at the Flamingo Las Vegas, and he is a member of the Potawomac tribe and an outspoken advocate for tribes, Native veterans, and federal recognition. Please welcome Mr. Wayne Newton, Mr. Las Vegas. Mr. Las Vegas, as someone who produces Culture Story, which is about showcasing the present-day vitality of indigenous culture and also having conversations about identity, where I want to start with today is you telling all of us here in the room and also later when people are listening on Native America Calling, talk to us about your identity. Okay, my identity is that uh, my mother was full-blooded Cherokee, and uh, her father was pure-blooded German. So my dad's side, uh, my grandfather was pure-blooded uh, Potawatomi, and uh, his wife was pure Irish. So I'm a quarter Irish, a quarter German, and half Native American. 
And the Native American part of me fills my heart and causes it to beat every day as it has my whole life. So I relate to you, and it's about time you got here. I've been waiting. I love that. And your pride for your culture even extends to having a ranch in Montana. Can you talk about how meaningful that is to you? Well, it's very meaningful, but we're right next to the reserve uh, in Montana, which is wonderful because that makes me feel right at home. And uh, we have a ranch here. My two loves in life were horses and music, and I didn't know which I loved more. But I can tell you which afforded the other. <laughs> we know you had a very successful performance career. Well, it's, it's interesting because I was born in Virginia. Okay. And um, I am a direct descendant of Pocahontas. Okay. Uh, which I found out um, about 1980. I had no idea. In 1930... Uh, 32, somewhere in there, the government of Virginia passed a law that said if you were not white Anglo-Saxon, you would be considered black. And uh, so, so many of our people burned their papers, they burned everything. My dad would not talk about his heritage until he was around 70 years old. So I had no idea growing up in Virginia until I was eight, and I became very ill with uh, with asthma, and so the doctors recommended that my family move out of that climate because I was sick all the time. And so we moved to Phoenix, Arizona, and that's the first time I ever felt any kind of prejudice uh, for my heritage. Uh, I was called an apple. I was. It did not matter to me what people called me, because I knew what was in my heart, yeah, and that's connected to this. You know who you are and where you come from, and that has fueled a lot of your advocacy work. Yes. Can you talk to us about that? Well, my advocacy work actually started in in uh, Phoenix, in grade school. I realized that. If I was being called names that people considered not to be nice, uh, that the rest of my people or indigenous people were going through the same thing. And so I found, a, uh, I found an orphanage in, outside of Phoenix in Levine, Arizona, that took in orphans and taught school at the same time. And so I would raise food, money, anything I could do every year uh, right before the holidays to take them the food, clothing, and those kind of things which they were in dire need of. And so that has been a part of my life being Forever. philanthropic. And, yes. But the, the advocacy work that you've done for getting federal recognition for the tribe of your fathers, 
Yes. That must have been quite the process. They were going through uh, the process in Virginia and were coming up uh, against the the, uh, state government. Mm -hmm. And so I called the chairman, Chairman Green, and asked if I could be of any help. And he said, oh, my God, yes. And so I had meetings with he and the council. And we, I then traveled to uh, Richmond, Virginia, spoke to the governor, uh, spoke to the legislative people that were in charge of deciding whether or not the tribe would be recognized. And with the grace of the good man upstairs, mm-hmm. and it all turned out they were recognized, and uh, now they're going for federal recognition. That's awesome. Well, let's give that that round of applause. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Federal, re- federal recognition and indigenous identity today. So my tribe, we also have Alaska Native corporations that cause us to be recognized. And our, uh, our Native Corp, C Alaska, has recently put to vote amongst our Uh, Alaska Native tribal member shareholders if we want to allow descendants to be able to enroll. And this is like an ongoing debate in Indian country is how do you define indigeneity? And uh, when I spoke recently to uh, a lawyer from Seattle named Mr. Gabe Galanda who was working on a tribal disenrollment case of the Nooksack 306, he was asserting it's never been the tribal way to actually, or it wasn't our way, it was a colonial construct to put our names on rolls and have there be a way to be able to chart genealogy. Otherwise, it was oral history. I just feel that somewhere in there, you can speak to your perspective on what what, um, indigenous identity is today, but also your perspective on what it should be ongoing, because clearly it means a lot to you. It it means so much to me, uh, and I had no idea why I was, from the time I was a little boy, fascinated with the story of Pocahontas, and uh, Matoka was her real name, and uh, her father, Chief Powhatan, gave her the name of Pocahontas, which is laughing child Mm -hmm. in our language, and... um, About 1980, I decided that we should go to England and find her remains and bring them back and have her buried where she should be buried. And uh, I met with a great deal of resistance. Uh, I hired uh, Dr. Lee, the anthropologist, and uh, Dr. Bodden, I sent them to London, England to research it. That's when they discovered that I was a descendant of hers from her first marriage before the English colony was built at Jamestown. And I think it's important not to only understand our roots and where we came from and what our heart and our our elders tell us, but the fact that the first settlers to this country were prisoners, including John Smith. Mm. 
they were all released from prison to go to the new world and build a life. Well, it's that group that the people of Virginia came in contact with. Well, that's quite a different group from what history would want us to believe. And so the history of Pocahontas has been terribly destroyed and wrong. And uh, so when they were teaching here in Nevada, my first daughter at a school, and they were talking about the Cherokee Tear Trail, I happened to pick up her history book and look at it. And it was all lies. It was all written by the people who were trying to destroy our people. And that truly was their, that was what they set out to do. And you have no idea how I feel now that our people have taken the reins and are showing up and building and becoming the people that we are instead of what history has led us to believe that we are. You're listening to an interview with Wayne Newton, recorded live at the Reservation Economic Summit in Las Vegas, Nevada. Wayne Newton is the embodiment of Las Vegas entertainment and an advocate for Native issues. We'll hear more from him after this break. Author, educator, and longtime tribal chairman, Greg Saris' new memoir connects his life and experiences with indigenous understandings of the land and culture. We'll talk with him about his new book, Becoming Story, a journey among seasons, places, trees, and ancestors. That's on the next Native America Calling. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a -a one-of-a-kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes, healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. Thanks for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Melissa London. Today we're highlighting an interview with stage and screen entertainer Wayne Newton. He started performing in Las Vegas at 15, and he is currently performing in his show Up Close and Personal at Flamingo Las Vegas. This interview was recorded at the Reservation Economic Summit in Las Vegas. Here's more from Wayne Newton. So then I would think that you'd be pretty excited that some of our... Our tribes are being able to buy some of the Las Vegas Strip. (laughs) Oh, I am thrilled beyond words. I am thrilled beyond words because... This town has gone through so many of the same problems that our people have gone through. Uh, For example, when I came here at 15 years old... uh, you had to be 21 to work one of these hotels. Mm -hmm. That was the government rule. 
and uh, they got a special permit for me because I was 15 years old. And the permit said Wayne Newton can work at the Fremont Hotel. He's just not allowed to be in the place he's working. Okay. How does that work? I still haven't figured that out, but when they gave me the schedule, it made a little more sense. We were used to doing maybe one show a week, my brother and I. And uh, when they gave us our schedule of work at the Fremont, it was six shows a night, six nights a week. Mm -hmm. 40 minutes on, 20 minutes off. 40 minutes on, 20 minutes off. In the 20 minutes, it meant that I could not stay in the hotel. I had to go out and stand on the street corner of Fremont. Rules. uh, Six times a night. Well, there were some ladies working that corner out there (laughs) that took really good care of me. And I don't mean that way. They... they (laughs) I mean, at 15. They, I, they took care of me start. to make sure I got fed. Yeah. I didn't get in trouble. I uh-huh. didn't go on the wrong path. And the people of this town are the kind of people that would have crossed the desert in a covered wagon. I mean, they, the people of this town, it was built on service. So the people happen to be some of the nicest people in the world that live here. And they took a kid in and kind of mothered and fathered because my parents did not come up here when I came up here. They came up about maybe two years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, what started out to be two weeks engagement has turned into a lifetime in this city. And the city truly has the nicest people in the world. Can we give Wayne Newton an applause for his long-standing career? Like, truly. It's really impressive. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think we have many Native youth in the audience. Do we have any Native youth here? I know we all are youthful. Anyways, people are... The the point is, is I want you to say something inspiring to Native youth about pursuing their dreams and making it happen. Because that's what you've done your whole life. Well, the wonderful thing is not, and and our people here tonight are a perfect example of that, present company included. Thank you. (laughs) You have not let someone else decide who you are and what you are. And as long as we stay there, it really is quite that simple. And uh, when people would malign me in some form or fashion of of my heritage, I felt sorry for them. Because had it not been for our people, there wouldn't be those people who felt sorry for us. Yeah, well, yeah. (laughs) Let's give that. (laughs) The revisionist history that takes place in history books... Uh, what are some of the ways that you, whether it's through your shows or through your other work, that you help to remind people of that? Because you're able to reach so many people with your platform and with who you are. It was interesting to me because when I read the Cherokee Cheer Trail mm-hmm. that they were teaching in school, I gathered my wife and we went to the school. And I said to the principal, 
I will not have my daughter taught this garbage as fact. The charity tear trail was just another attempt at an annihilation of our race, of our people. Mm -hmm. And I said, if I have to remove my daughter from this school, I will. And the principal said, I could not agree with you more. We simply will not grade her in this, but I cannot change the curriculum. The people who inhabit our country as quote-unquote leaders have realized that the way to teach and change an entire world of people is through education in schools. And so that's why they started with the lies and all those kinds of things about all of our people. It's because they are truly raising them so that they could vote for the inequities that have been done. Well, if we're getting into this realm, I can't help but bring up the boarding schools and the reports that have come out about that. Will that be a part of your advocacy work? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the true fact of the matter that so many people do not know is that our people represent the largest number of military soldiers Our people represent the future of the world because the elderly are respected in the way that they should be. Let's face it, our elders teach us what they have been through and what they've learned and how to assimilate because that's where the world is today assimilation mm. and yet to keep those values that are so important to make us grow and to make us learn and to make us stand up for who we are can you expand on the value systems of being indigenous that really resonate with you and that you think could help our modern society if they had a better understanding of them I don't think our society has to understand our indigenous people. I think it's our indigenous people that have to understand the society in which we live. All right? Okay. And so when we are able to assimilate and then find our place in a position of power, in a position of being able to speak to people and have them understand that you're coming from a different place. I mean, all these, I, I, daily I smile when I think, and, and probably shouldn't at some of the things, mm-hmm. but the forest fires that exist today, what, are, what is the federal government doing but now going back to our people and finding out why those things didn't happen? 
when we inherited the earth. That is true. That's true. Right. Well, indigenous knowledge, we knew the symbiotic relationship between the land and a yes. sustainable way to continue to behave with it as humans. And yes, absolutely. Yeah, we don't over-harvest. And the previous talk up here was about food sovereignty. Right. Right? Right. So they're moving back to our people to find the answers to the mess that they've made. I, uh, yes. <laughs> I mean... Something that you said a few moments ago that I think is really applicable to why we are here at Res was that, you know, part of the process of us, I wouldn't say assimilating, but just gaining more power is being able to then run businesses and put ourselves in the positions that we're not having to ask for things, but to protect our tribal sovereignty by building companies. Uh, Do you want to speak to that, the power of economic development? Well, it's this that is going to lift our people to the position that we should be. And that is when you think of, when you think of the mess they've made with the inclusion of drugs into our country. And instead of facing it head on, as our people always did, face any problem like that head on, it, it, it becomes mind-boggling at how long it takes the present group of people who are running the country and designating that these things happen, that they're not dealing with the real problem. Mm -hmm. The real problem is other people bringing those problems to us because they've ruined their own countries. Because they... They have ruined their own countries. So they're coming here thinking if we bring these things with us, then we can control everybody. And to a certain extent, they've been successful. Now, it's changing, I think. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you're here this week. The fact that we're all here this week. business leaders, ways of doing things, talking to people, respecting our elders. You don't, you don't put our elders out to pasture. You listen to what they've learned and what they have lived through, and what they have conquered, you, you don't say, you're, you're finished at this age. Next. Yes, there's always going to be the age thing, but it should, be, it should be something that nature takes care of, not man. Love it. Just the way that you speak, you're just very motivational, positive, and I see that you bring that into your career. I mean, you just spoke about age, and I mean, you're 80, and you don't act like how we would think an 80-year-old how old? would act. How old am I? <laughs> just, <laughs> it's impressive. I'm 21. My mother told mind, me, yeah. pick an age you like and stay there, so I have. Perfect. I love it. <laughs> So what would you say to people about pursuing their their dreams for their entire life? I mean, that just seems to be how you live your, that's your existence. I started in show business at the age of four because I started singing with my mother in church. And uh, at five years old, I had a local radio show, WDBJ in Roanoke, Virginia. 
And uh, when my dad left to, to, he was part of World War II. He was a Navy, in the Navy in World War II. When he came back, being in the little town that he had been raised in, in Fredericksburg, Virginia, mm-hmm. Stafford County, uh, he had seen other things. He had seen other places. He had, he had been around other people. And so he wanted to travel. And so we did a lot of traveling uh, in my early years. I started to say youth, which is... A, Um, a wrong analogy. (laughs) Uh, But I ended up with bronchial asthma when I was seven years old. And was a very ill child. Uh, So my parents took me, they finally found a doctor with a license. And Hmm. they took me to see him. And he called the family and my brother, myself, and my parents. And he said, if you want this kid to live, you better get him out of this climate because he has bronchial asthma. So we moved to Phoenix, Arizona Hi. when I was eight years old. And in Phoenix, uh, we had entered a talent contest, my brother and I. The grace of the good man upstairs and you. Uh, we ended up having our own weekly television show, 30 minutes a week from the time I was eight years old until I was 15. And at 15, an agent from California came through Phoenix, saw our television show, uh, hunted up my parents' phone number, because you could do that in those days, and uh, got my mother on the phone. He said, I want that kid to try out in Las Vegas. And so my brother and I jumped aboard a Greyhound and came up to Las Vegas. Uh, auditioned at the Fremont downtown, and um, the gentleman who was auditioning us listened to two songs, and he got up like he was going to leave. And I thought, well, back to school. And uh, he looked at me and he said, if we can get you a work permit, he said, I will hire you guys for two weeks. Okay. So we went back to Phoenix two days later, we get the call to come back to Vegas and start our two weeks. So that two-week engagement turned into a five-year contract. Nice. So you got to start somewhere. So I... <laughs> it was wonderful, though, because it was the greatest experience in terms of learning. Mm. Because people simply had to buy a 60-cent drink, and they could sit there for six hours. Right, mm-hmm. and if they didn't like you or like what you were doing, they get up and leave. And if they get up and leave, you're out of work. So it it became a learning experience that I will never forget. Simply because anything that could happen on stage happened in that five years, from maybe a person dying oh. in the showroom. Okay, that's All dramatic. Right? And how do you handle that on from the stage? Uh-huh. Think about it. And people having seizures in the audience. We were flashed a lot. Okay. 
But it was a learning experience. <laughs> this is all from the ages of like 15 to 20, right? <laughs> right? Is that the ages? Yes. So it, it was the most wonderful experience in, in retrospect. As I look back now, uh, I look at the youngsters coming on in the entertainment business, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for the first time, I'm seeing young Native Americans in movies uh, on television, and it is just fabulous. It's wonderful. Speaking and I hope that someone does not take that learning experience away from them. And uh, so I think that if I had anything or any situation that I would have to attribute what it is I become, whatever that is, it would be that five years in the lodge. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian country has put its trust in Amerind providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D dot com. We're listening to an interview with Wayne Newton recorded in front of a live audience in Las Vegas at the Reservation Economic Summit. He was talking about the beginning of his Las Vegas career at the Fremont Hotel and Casino. About that time, his talents were about to take him to a much higher level. What was another milestone in your career? You the next one flex. was when I moved from lounges to the main showroom. Okay. okay, I was used to doing the six shows a night, six nights a week, and sleeping until it was time to go to work again. Uh, when I moved into main showrooms... We got hit with two shows a night, Mm -hmm. seven days a week. So I did, when I was working for Mr. Howard Hughes, which was 15 years of working for him, I did 36 weeks without a day off. Just shows how much you love what you do. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. But I thank you. I, I think the chance to be around wonderful people like Mr. Hughes, like Kirk Kerkorian, like so many people that built Las Vegas until the corporations moved in, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I was the first one to play Native American casinos that were bingo halls. Wow. And that's before the gaming started to be okay with the government. Yeah. So you saw the growth of the Indian evolution gaming throughout yes. your career. Have you done a lot of tours throughout Indian country at the gaming facility? I have. We have played almost every Native American casino uh, uh, that there is and, uh, and thrilled to be a part of the growth and a part of the learning experience that our people are now going through. It is just fabulous to watch. It is fabulous. 
You, you mentioned a few names. Um, our, our producer also mentioned, you know, he probably has some cool stories about Elvis and Frank Sinatra. <laughs> <laughs> well, most people want to know about Elvis thinking about him as a performer. Uh, my favorite story, he and I became really dear friends, but I didn't meet him until the mid-60s, and he was the giant star headlining the Hilton then. Uh, I couldn't go see him because I was working at the same time. And people think, I think it's natural for people to think that there's a, a, a kind of... Uh, game that goes on between performers, meaning that we don't get along with each other because we compete with each other. Mm. Okay, the truth of the matter is it's the antithesis of that. We do get along because we understand each other. And secondly, if people came to see Elvis, maybe they would, on the second night or third night, come and see me or go and see Frank Sinatra or go and see Sammy Davis, or go and see Neil, you know, Martin, uh, Neil, uh, not Neil, but Dean Martin. Uh, so we became really good friends, the whole entertainment end of it. Uh, it was not competitive, as people might imagine, in the least. It was the exact opposite. So... I had been asked to be a star, or, or guest star, on a show called Bonanza. Okay. Oh, uh, good. We're going to talk about your TV <laughs> film career. In 1963, I think. And uh, so it was being shot at Paramount Motion Picture Lot. I'm sitting on the stage learning my lines, and there's a tap on the shoulder. And I turned around, and lo and behold, it's Elvis. Happens to me too. I I imagine that, right? It's God, right? Yeah. And he didn't have on his cape or any of that stuff, but it was Elvis. And I started mumbling about what a big fan I was, how much I loved his work. And yeah, thank you very much. Thank thank you. Thank you. And finally he said, Wayne. I said, yes. He said, I'm shooting one of my movies next door in the next stage. And he said, my guys in the band told me you were here, so I came over to ask you a question. And I said, sure, go ahead. And he said, do you know a girl by the name of Sandy Farah? Hmm. And I said, uh, well, yes, I do. In fact, uh, we're dating. <laughs> and he said, so are we. <laughs> So it's competitive in some ways. Uh, <laughs> we both started to laugh hysterically, luckily, right? And became instantaneous friends for the rest of his life. And so he was thing. one great human being. That's awesome. You're a great human being, too. You've been Thank so you. nice. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you. Can you share with us some of your favorite memories of your career or some of the favorite songs you've done just some of the things you're most proud of well it's interesting because uh, I think it's interesting it doesn't mean you have to think it's interesting I have recorded to date 165 albums a lot Uh, we have enjoyed 
18 number one records or top 10. Congrats. And uh, it's interesting because some of the songs, uh, like Daddy, Don't You Walk So Fast, that was the first song that really dealt with people getting divorced and the effect it has on children. Mm. Now, there have been songs since, but that was the first one. Uh, Capitol Records that I was under contract to um, didn't, there was, the head of Capitol Records was not thrilled with me because I heard this song, it was written in England, and I sent it to Capitol by virtue of my contract to okay me recording it. They called back and said, no, that's a terrible song. And I started doing it on stage to see what the people thought of it. And within a week, I had people coming into the showroom asking for that song. So I said, I'm going to record it. Well, it irritated Capitol tremendously, but I recorded it and I paid for it. Wow. And um, I took it into the head of the NR department at Capitol, the single, and he wouldn't even look at me. He was very upset that I had recorded the song in spite of what they thought. And uh, he wouldn't look at me, put it on the turntable, and put his feet on the desk and when it finished, he looked at me and he said, that could be the worst song I've ever heard. And it was well, actually the best? The one thing that I like to think of myself as a, kind of an easygoing guy. The one thing that irritates me tremendously and always has is rudeness. Understandably. And so when he said that, I said, well, look, you have no money in this at all. I paid for it. Why don't you give me my record and my contract, and I'll not cast a shadow on your doorstep. And without looking at his drawer, even, he slid the door open, picked my contract up, and handed it to me. And I took my single and my contract and walked out. And as I did, I must be candid with you, I thought maybe I overreacted. Maybe. Maybe. So I found another gentleman to release the record. It sold five million copies as a single. The album went double platinum. And the gentleman at Capitol Records was fired. Dark a shame, darling, dark a shame. Thank you for all the joy and pain. Picture show, second balcony was the place we'd meet. Second seat, gold Dutch treat, you were sweet, dark a shame. Darling, don't go shame Save those lives 
What a mess, I confess, that's not all. Dark as shame, darling, dark as shame. Thank you for walks down lover's lane. I can see hearts carved on a tree. Let us intertwine for all time, yours and mine. That was fine. Dark as shame, darling, dark as Well, Mr. Newton, <laughs> you've, had a, you've had an absolutely, or you're still having an absolutely amazing career, and you inspire so many of us. And thank you. You also just have such a heart for Indian country, and thank you for sharing some uh, of the stories about your identity and also about key moments in your career. And I know that we would love to talk with you for even longer, but for now, let's stand up and give Mr. Wayne Newton a round of applause. Thanks for tuning in today to hear this conversation with Wayne Newton. Thanks to the National Center for American Indian Enterprise Development for making this interview possible. This is Native America Calling. I'm Alyssa London.
it broke my heart to tell my little daughter that her daddy had to run to catch a train. She had no way of knowing I was leaving home for good. I turned around and there she was again as she said to me, Daddy, don't you walk so Support by the Facundo Valdez School of Social Work at Highlands University, now offering the opportunity to earn a culturally relevant, clinical, Master of Social Work degree without leaving your own community. This online MSW degree focuses on a small, supportive model with a clinical concentration. Students in rural areas, tribal communities, and or who live far from campus are given preference. Application can be made in three easy steps. More info and application at online.nmhu.edu. Cachet. First baby, don't know where to start? CMS programs cover prenatal services. Enroll today. Contact your local Indian health care provider for more information. Visit healthcare.gov or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Elahqua. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.